Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, it is truly wonderful that you love, have loved, and continue to love even me, even us. And as our dear son Philip was praying, God, it is to show your glory, and it is for your glory that you have saved sinners. It doesn't, it doesn't terminate in us, but in you. So we're grateful, God, that we can rejoice, we can celebrate, we can, we can thank you, we can have this united heart of gratitude for all that Christ is and what he's done for us. And, Lord, even the giving of your word to us as we're about to preach it and hear it, God, it is out of your love for us and even greater than that, to show your glory and for your glory alone. So thank you, Father, for all of these things, and uh, we ask you to bless this time now. In Jesus' precious name, amen. There's an old fable that goes something like this. Two roosters fought for supremacy in the farmyard. And finally, one was vanquished, and he went and hid himself in the corner of the hen house. But the victor flew up to the roof. He went up to the top of the barn and begins to crow, I've won, I've won. And suddenly, an eagle, eagle swoops down and carries him away. And so the rooster, who had been defeated, suddenly found himself unchallenged, the master of the farmyard. Perhaps that's a good illustration of Proverbs 16:18, which says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. In today's text in the Gospel of Mark, if you would turn there with me to chapter 9, we find Jesus' disciples needing to fight the battle with pride. Fight their battle with pride, lest it defeat them. We're in Mark chapter 9, verses 30 to 37 today, after our special sermon last week for Resurrection Day. Our sermon title today is, Who is the Greatest? Who is the Greatest? And we want to see from this text Jesus teaching a lesson. And he's teaching, he's teaching us, he's teaching the disciples that true greatness comes with humbling ourselves in service to others. Mark chapter 9, verses 30 to 37. This somewhat familiar, this very familiar, this some familiar to some and other parts of it less. But uh, let us stand, if you are able, I'm going to read this wonderful text from Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 30. We're going to verse 37 today, and this is the word of God. From there, they went out and began to go through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know about it. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he began to question them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. And taking a child, he set him before them. Taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one child like this in my name 
receives me. And whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. You may be seated. Very excited for this this time and the word that God has given to us today. And we have three basic points, and if you have uh, your insert there, you can look at them. There's no blanks to, to fill out today, but there's some space there if you're wanting to take notes. But the first point that we want to look at is verses 30 to 32, which is the greatest act of all time. The greatest act of all time. And verse 30, just kind of setting up, uh, says, From there they went out and began to go through Galilee. From there. Where? Well, it's been a couple weeks now, so uh, let's just recall together that not too long ago, Jesus and the three, Peter, James, and John, were at the Mount of Transfiguration, which we think is Mount Hermon, which is in the area of Caesarea Philippi, which is roughly 40 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. And so they come down, right? They have this incredible experience, and what do they find? But the rest of the nine, in an argument with some scribes, And then a dad comes and speaks from the crowd, and he says, I brought my son, my demon-possessed son, to your disciples, and they couldn't get him out. And so Jesus, of course, handles it. He deals with it. He casts the demon out. Along the way, he's drawing out the faith of this poor, forlorn dad who believes, but he says, help my unbelief. And along the way, he teaches his disciples a lesson about prayer and faith. And so it comes to this. They're coming through from there, that area, to through Galilee, back down to Capernaum, to their headquarters there, near at the northwest part of the Sea of Galilee. And uh, it says they're traveling through Galilee. So, and he doesn't want anybody to know about it. So Jesus wants to lay low. Why is that? Well, it's because his ministry focus is shifting. Okay, we're like halfway through the Gospel of Mark, right? And so we're two plus years into Jesus' ministry. And now... His, his focus is shifting from public miracles and these, these incredible works uh, to private teaching. And so um, he doesn't want all the crowds around, and he wants to have this time of instruction and training and preparation of these 12 men. Hey, they have a hard road ahead of them. They have a lot of lessons to learn. And so, in fact, the next couple chapters of Mark are full of lessons for them, hey, as well as some for the people in general. And for us. So some of these lessons include our attitudes towards others, a lesson about hell, about marriage and divorce coming up in chapter 10, who enters the kingdom of God, the nature of salvation, the rewards of following him, humility and service and the gospel, judgment, prayer, eschatology. All of these lessons are coming uh, forth uh, to us. We get to look forward to them in the coming weeks and months. But... For now, we see in Mark chapter 9 that his public ministry is now changing. It's going to consist now more of teaching rather than performing all sorts of miracles for the crowds, although not completely. His face is set towards Jerusalem, as Luke puts it in in Luke chapter 9. His face is, is set like a flint towards the cross, and he's very focused now. It's less than a year away. So what's he teaching and telling the 12 here in this instance in Mark chapter 9? So I'm calling this point um, the greatest act of all time. Verse 31. He was teaching his disciples and telling them, The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. This is the second time 
that Mark specifically records Jesus telling his disciples what's going to happen to him in the future. He'll do so again. So that was Mark chapter 8, verse 31, right? So he's going to say it again in Mark 10, verses 33 and 34. So progressively, he's letting the twelve know what is going to happen to him in his upcoming death and resurrection. And so I just I want you to note three things okay, um, about this greatest act. First of all, he says the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men. And the Son of Man, of course, Jesus is talking about himself, right? In the third person, the most frequent title he used of himself, the Amazing One, the Son of Man, is to be delivered into the hands of men. Okay, this one is going to be delivered. That means handed over into the hands of men. Interestingly, this is what's called a divine passive. Okay? Even though it ends up being Judas who betrays Jesus into the hands of the Roman authorities, right? and it's the, the scribes and the Pharisees who are plotting all this stuff, um, ultimately it is God who is delivering up Jesus for our redemption. Okay? So that's why it's called a divine passive. He's going to be delivered into the hands of men, but it's not Judas, it's not the Rome, it's not the Jews. It's ultimately God who is working in all this. So Acts chapter 2, verses 22 and 23, Peter is preaching, right? This is that first sermon. He says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, verse 23, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and knowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And the Bible clearly teaches that the passion of Christ, it had its ultimate initiative and ultimate ground in God's, God's plan, his plan for salvation. So that's the first thing. Second thing, it says they will kill him and when he has been killed, you, you want to just take note of that double reference to the word kill. Okay, the Lord has not mentioned the exact way that he would be put to death to the twelve at this point. Okay? He didn't say it's going to be by crucifixion. But this indicates the fact that he's going to be put to death in a violent manner. Okay, there's some emphasis there when he says killed and be killed. Right. Third thing, he will rise three days later. He will rise Jesus uses the active voice here, meaning he's going to rise from the dead in his own power and might. <laughs> so the scripture gives us both, right? Matthew actually uses the passive voice. The Father is going to raise him up. God's, God, the Father, is the agent of Jesus' resurrection. But note, okay, in Jesus' teaching, like when he mentions what's going to happen, he, he, he never separates resurrection from his death. It's always death and resurrection. It's always, I'm going to be killed, but I'm going to rise again. Okay? So we want to take note of that. There's no, no hope, no good news. There's no, no real anything for the disciples to, to look forward to or have hope for, or for us, for anyone, without the resurrection, okay, which we specially celebrated just last week. So I urge you, I urge you, may we not let our familiarity with the facts of the gospel, the truths of the gospel, the precious gospel, diminish our sense of wonder and amazement over it. Okay, what Christ will undergo, as he tells the disciples here, is simply the greatest act in all of history. The greatest act 
of all time. That God, the true and living God, eternal, immortal, invisible God, only wise, in the person of Jesus Christ, becomes a man, became as one of us, lived in complete holiness and obedience to the Father, never once sinning, never once losing his cool, never once succumbing to the temptations and lusts of of sinful man and passions of man, living like we should have but couldn't and wouldn't, living like we should have but wouldn't and couldn't, and then willingly goes to the cross as the only acceptable perfect sacrifice for our sins, for your sins, for my sins. And then, as he said, be killed, be put to death, be put to death by those he came to save, hung on a tree, nailed to a cross, and buried. And then on the third day, resurrection. Resurrection. I am the life. Truly, this was the greatest act of all time. And let it not be lost on us, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, that this was the ultimate in sacrifice. The Father giving and handing over the Son to us, the Son voluntarily and willingly receiving and bearing the punishment of all the sins for everyone who would believe through all the ages. Hey, sacrifice. I think it's worth pausing to think about the meaning of that, the very basic meaning of sacrifice. It is to give up something good or valuable or precious in order that someone else might benefit. Hey, to give up something good so that someone else can be helped, someone else can be blessed, So the point, Jesus' sacrifice was not an act of lording over, but rather it was an act of humble service. And this is part of the wonder and amazement and beauty of the gospel. And isn't that consistent with the way the God of the Bible works? As we zoom out and we look at Christ, even a a cursory look at, at his life, the greatest story ever told, Okay? He chooses the manger over a king's palace. Okay? It's, it's humility over pomp and circumstance. It's, it's carpentry over royalty. Okay? It's, uh, it's the foal of a donkey rather than an armed chariot. And it's the cross over the crown. And this, is, this is the beauty of Jesus Christ. And our greatest problem is solved. Our greatest need is fulfilled It took the Son of Man coming not to serve, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. It's coming in Mark chapter 10, right? Verse 45. The greatest act in history was marked by the most lovely Christ being treated as the most lowly criminal on a cross. The first in rank becomes last of all, the king of all being a servant of all. And so... I want us not to take that for granted, folks. We'll get to it at the end. I'm going to have a few points of application at the end. But verse 32, it says, They did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. Interestingly, the twelve could not fathom what this meant. They couldn't comprehend it, that he's going to be killed, first of all, and then that he would rise three days later. As we rehearsed during the course of our Resurrection Day weekend last, last week, even after the women who first visited the empty tomb, uh, they came and told them about what they saw and what the angel told them. Okay, even after that, they, they, they didn't get it. They still couldn't believe it, 
right? Peter and John, what do they do? They get up, they start running towards the, the tomb and see for themselves, and they're shocked. They're shocked that the tomb was empty. And so they could not understand the statement even then. It says there in verse 32, they were afraid to ask him, right? That's, that's reasonable, isn't it? Because you recall in Mark chapter 8, not too long before this time, that um, Peter, he speaks up after Jesus tells him the first time what's going to happen to him. And uh, Peter gets rebuked by Jesus, right? He actually says, get behind me, Satan, for your, your mind is set on man's interests and not God's. And so they're, they're not saying anything at this point, okay? They don't ask Jesus to expound and explain any further. And instead, as they're traveling back to Capernaum, they get into a different discussion with one another. And what is that? The second point for today. Hey, the debate about greatness. The debate about greatness. This is verses 33 and 34. And it says, They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he began to question them, What were you discussing on the way? They kept silent, for on the way they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. And the starkness of contrast in what Jesus has just told them with what they were thinking about and actually discussing with one another could not be greater. We uh, should not miss that, right? He's just explained again that he's going to be delivered over and killed and with much violence even. And all they can talk about is who among them is going to be the greatest. This seems incredulous, doesn't it? It seems almost preposterous, almost absurd. And yet, how real, how honest the Bible is. How real and honest are these men who have been moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God, 2 Peter 1.21, right? It's likely that Peter was Mark's primary source for the writing of his gospel, Peter's the leader of the Twelve, who was eyewitness, who was there for all these things. He's telling it like it happened, and it really doesn't make any of them look good at all. And so, like I've mentioned in the past, to me this is a great apologetic for the veracity, the truthfulness of the Bible. So verse 33, they're in the house. Maybe it's Peter's house. This is the headquarters there in Capernaum. Jesus asked them, hey, what were you guys talking about on the way over? And it's not like Jesus was unaware. Okay? Luke records that Jesus asked, knowing what they were reasoning in their hearts. Right? But what does the greatest of teachers, our Lord Jesus, do? Okay? He asks questions to, to draw out people, to draw things out of people, to teach them, okay? to make them think. And of course, the twelve have no words. Okay? They're like those, ever see those YouTube clips of dogs and they made a mess of the house, and the owner gets home, and they're asking, the dog, did you do that? And the dogs are like, <laughs> giving them that face. I just uh, imagine the, the, the 12 here just keeping silent. They're ashamed of what their debate was about. Who is the greatest? Who is the greatest among us? They, they, were, they were making things about them and not about Jesus. How prideful, how arrogant, how self-centered, dear Faith Bible Church family. Pride is such an impediment to growth. Pride is anti-gospel. Pride is anti-Christ. It's the polar opposite of who Jesus is in his utter humility, in his love, in his selflessness. Can I ask, do we ever struggle with pride here? The attitude of pride in ourselves 
Folks, it's so hard to see for ourselves, okay, unless someone is kind enough to tell us about it. This uh, reminds me of that story about Muhammad Ali. He's, he's uh, on a plane, and the stewardess asked him to put on his seatbelt as the plane is getting ready to take flight. And he responds, don't you know who I am? Float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. My name is Muhammad Ali. Hey, I'm the greatest of all time. I'm the greatest heavyweight champion of the world. I'm Superman. Superman don't need no seatbelt. And without blinking, the stewardess replies back, Superman don't need no plane. Put on your seatbelt. <laughs> and so, just uh, we don't see it unless we're shown it, right? And so, as for the disciples here, Jesus points out their pride by asking this simple question. Hey, hey guys, what were you talking about as we were walking along the way? And the most humble and loving and selfless act in the history of the world He's just told them, juxtaposed with these guys, arguing, actually, not just discussing, not saying, no, 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 I think it's, I think it's you. No, it's got to be you. Hey, they're discussing among, like, I'm going to be the greatest. I am the greatest now. I will be the greatest then. Hey, I deserve it. We just had that experience on, on the mountain. Right? Oh, wait, oops, I wasn't supposed to say that, right? They're having that discussion. This is just uh, incredible, incredible that... Just, just what's happening here in the text, right? And so, I'm a bit embarrassed to admit, but let me just uh, share this. At church, years, years ago, as a, a young Christian, um, just heard a sermon faithfully preached uh, by the pastor. Hey, the precious gospel proclaimed, the word of God explained, and the first thing I talk about afterwards with others is about how cold it was in the sanctuary. <laughs> I mean, it was freezing in there. Can you believe it? Right? And uh, just talking about anything and everything other than, uh, other than the word that was just preached. I, I admit that with shame that, that has happened in the past. Um, but I, I just want you to see pride and self, it, it, it expresses itself in, in so many ways. And a lot of times we, we don't even see it. And so the disciples were caught up in themselves. That's what happens to us, right? We get caught up in our, ourselves, and we can't see that, that it's, it's, uh, we're making things about us. Pride goes before destruction. And so the 12, they were quieted in their shame. Jesus knew this. Notice he doesn't rebuke them. Hey, how tender, how patient, how long-suffering our Lord is. Instead, he gives them a lesson. And this is our final point here. Jesus' definition and description of greatness. Verses 35 to 37. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, shall be last of all and a servant of all. They're in the house. The Lord sits down because that's the customary way that rabbis did it. They were sitting down. It's, it's time for a lesson. It's time to teach. And so he summons the twelve. He says, come here. And he defines the meaning of true greatness with this this famously paradoxical statement. If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and a servant of all. Defining greatness. You might even say redefining greatness. This is how he does it. The twelve, they all want to be the greatest. They want to be first. They're arguing back and forth about which one of them is or will be in the kingdom of God. And so Jesus teaches them what real greatness is. According to him, Greatness is characterized by being last of all and servant of all. In other words, humility 
and others-mindedness rather than pride and self-centeredness. Okay? Humility and others-mindedness rather than pride and self-centeredness. Okay? You can put it very simply this way. Concern about others rather than comparison with others. Right? Some people will argue about, about this side point here, okay, and they don't or won't understand this, but if you study the text okay, here or in the other Gospels, Jesus never says that the desire for greatness or even the desire to be first, okay, to, to be in, in some position of influence or power in the kingdom of God, um, next to Jesus came, uh, even that desire, he, he never says that that is outright wrong. Okay, the innate ambition to lead, to excel as a leader, is not necessarily unspiritual. And let me give you an example. Okay, is it wrong or prideful for a man to desire to have spiritual leadership in the church? Okay, not according to 1 Timothy 3, verse 1, which says, it is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, okay, pastor, elder, it is a fine work he desires to do. Okay, that word aspire, if any man aspires to the office of overseer, of leader, of spiritual leader, okay, it's a fine work he desires to do. Aspire to reach out, to, to want, to desire, to stretch oneself in order to grab something. So that being said, is it, is it wrong for a man to compare himself to other pastors or elders and desire to be greater than others? Hey, of course that's wrong. That would be wrong because why? Because that is rooted in pride and self-concern rather than humbleness and concern for others. Hey, so for anyone, man or woman, in whatever positions of leadership or, or whatever role serving in the church, that would be wrong if that's the attitude going in. Okay? It's about me, it's about self-concern, it's rooted in pride. So going back to Mark, Jesus' lesson here is not, hey, hey men, uh, don't desire to be first. Don't desire to, to lead. Rather, he says, if anyone desires to be first like that, let him be last. Hey, being last is put together with being servant of all. So you want to be great? You want to lead? You want to be first? Well, you must be last of all and a servant of all. Hey, don't just say you're willing to be last. Right? Don't just say, yes, I, I like to serve. I, I'm willing to serve. But be a servant. Hey, be one who's actually serving. By the way, this was not the typical normal thinking or understanding in the uh, Greco-Roman culture of, of what greatness is. And nor is it in our modern society. Jesus' teaching almost all the time was so countercultural, counterintuitive. And greatness in the culture's thinking is notoriety, fame, prestige. Again, it's about self and self-promotion. Today's world, it's all about building my brand, right? It's not even enough to be rich. It's not enough to be, like, well-known. You have to have a brand. Okay, building my name, in other words. Okay, success and greatness in the world's thinking is I'm first. I'm the one in charge. I'm known. I want people to see that I have the power. And I, and I wonder, does anyone here struggle with that in your line of work or just 
in the church, outside the church, or wherever. Hey, that, this sense of, I do what I want to do, and I get others to do what I want them to do as well. I'm the boss. People serve me. Okay, and our pride comes up when, when we kind of want people to know that. Right? We want that to be known, that I'm the one in charge. So Jesus certainly would say that that is wrong. And the competition, the comparison between one another, that probably was part of the 12's debate, of course, that too is wrong. So, so what is true greatness? We're trying to define this here. We're kind of bringing this out. Okay? It's voluntarily humbling oneself, willing to assume the position of being last in one's own circle. It's being, as Jesus says, a servant of all. This is the, the attitude of and the taking on of the position of humility. And it expresses itself in voluntary service of other people. Peter himself learned this, proud, obstinate, stubborn Peter. He did learn this. Okay, decades later, he writes in 1 Peter 5, I exhort the elders among you, spiritual leaders, pastors of the church, shepherd the flock of God, exercising oversight, but not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God. And then he says, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge. Not lording it over those that God has given you to shepherd. Okay, but proving to be examples to the flock. Okay, proving to be what example? Okay, of someone who's humble. Someone who's a, a servant leader, like Jesus, the chief shepherd, which he mentioned in the next verse, was and is. So back to Mark here. Notice Jesus says, servant of all. Hey, dear 12, 12 men, 12 disciples, that means you towards one another. Hey, you three, Peter, James, John, you towards the nine. Hey, nine, you towards one another. Hey, nine, you towards the three, right? You want to be first? Think of yourself as last and serving the others. Peter, you want to be first in my kingdom, the greatest? Okay, be last and serve the other 11. But all doesn't just mean to them. He says if anyone, right, desires to be first, serve all, be last of all. It also means, disciples, serve not only each other, but serve the crowds, serve those needy, suffering people, serve the Jews, serve the Gentiles, serve the clean, serve the unclean, serve the rich, serve the poor, serve the political, serve the apolitical, serve the sick, the suffering, the spiritually lost, be a servant, he says, of all, of all. Just in in recent years, um, just counseling younger guys who are in seminary, Many times uh, I've observed and noticed that there and we're put in positions of, of leadership almost immediately because, because we can teach, right? So whatever stage of spiritual uh, maturity we are, because we can teach, they, they want to put you in a position of, of leadership. And uh, I, I find myself needing to sometimes, uh, as we get to know certain, certain guys, um, that They've never even had that experience of of being a regular member of the church. And they haven't had that experience of submitting themselves to authority, submitting themselves to church leadership, and um, growing just as a a member before being put in a position of leadership. And this is a problem because it feeds pride, right? It feeds that pride that just is is in us. And so um, the way to true greatness is not the highway, 
but the lowly way, humbling oneself in service to others and all others. Okay, so the next couple of verses is um, the description of greatness. You might say demonstration of greatness. Either word works. But as Jesus is defining, continuing to uh, explain that, he gives a description or demonstration of greatness. And taking a child, and uh, just in, in the Greek, there is that connecting conjunction there. And so I believe this is attached to uh, this, this whole passage, together with this whole passage. It's meant to be that way. Nasby doesn't have the and there. But taking a child, he set him before them. Take him in his arms, he says to them, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. So here's the object lesson, right? This is the description of greatness. Jesus lovingly uses his, his welcoming, his receiving of, of a child to illustrate his point about true greatness, okay? humility, service of all. And the context is during ancient Near East times, uh, children were not seen as particularly special or endearing in society, okay, expect, except to like their parents. Society's perspective on children was different from ours today. Okay, they didn't place an especially high view of, of young ones. And uh, you notice when you read the Gospels that Jesus' disciples, they, they seem to spend a lot of time like kind of shooing little ones away. Okay, that was inappropriate or bothersome for, for them to be around. Hey, we're going to get to it in the uh, next chapter of Mark 10, 13, and it's also in Matthew 19 and Luke 18. But some commentators have noted that the Jewish rabbis considered it to be a waste of time to teach the Torah, okay, the law, to, to children under 12 years old, okay, which doesn't really make sense to me because you read the Torah itself and it, it kind of says you're supposed to raise up your children in, in, the, in the Word. But anyway, all to say, as Jesus is about to illustrate his point regarding humble service, is he going to bring Peter, okay, the leader, or maybe James or John or Andrew, okay, or any of the other men to, to do that? No, he doesn't. Instead, he takes in a toddler, okay, this is a young child of the house. He brings him into his arms. Okay, Mark adds that little, little detail there, okay, how affectionate, how tender Jesus is towards the little ones. And he says, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. Let me tell you, many have taken this to mean that Jesus is telling the twelve that this child is the example of one who is lowly and humble. Has anyone heard that before? I I don't believe that that's what Jesus is, is teaching here. right? Rather, he's showing the disciples what it is to be least of all and a servant of all in the act of receiving this child, okay, by welcoming this child. He's just told them the, the definition of true greatness, right? It's to be a servant of who? All. And he demonstrates that by receiving receiving this one. Okay, so uh, we want to get that word, dekamai, receiving, uh, in our just clear, right? It means to welcome. It's not talking about receiving as in, as in belief, because okay, sometimes you read the Gospels when he says, like, we receive eternal, like, it has to do with believing, right? Believing in Jesus. But in this context, it means welcoming or serving or, or treating with hospitality. Okay? So he's demonstrating true greatness and being a servant of all by welcoming and serving even this insignificant toddler, as the culture then sees it, right? Uh, into, into the 
the situation here. So receiving this child like Jesus is doing here, welcome, welcoming this young one like this, okay, who can do nothing for you, right, which will do nothing for you, like doing something like serving little children, it's not going to do anything for your rank, for your prestige, for your notoriety in the world. It, Jesus is saying this is what greatness looks like. Luke 9, verse 47, 48. You don't have to turn there. It's the parallel passage. It says, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For the one who is least among all of you, disciples, this is the one who is great. So he's describing and showing the twelve. Look, it's the least among you guys who would do something like this. Okay, Serve and welcome a child. Treat a child with hospitality and kindness. Um, and And serve even even such a one as that. In doing so, you are the one who is great. Okay, that's, that's the path to greatness in my book, according to Jesus. Okay? Again, this reminds me of, of my uh, seminary days. Somehow or another, pride and, and seminary just kind of is going together here. Uh, we all got to watch out. But all of us guys, right, young guys, we, we wanted to, to teach, kind of chomping at the bit to, to lead a Bible study and to, to teach a, a group of um, grown adults, we want to impart our incredible wisdom and gifts to these blessed people, right? And, uh, and there was a wise man, a counselor at the seminary. His name was Ray Maringer. And he advised us to start in children's ministry. He says, go, go teach a bunch of kindergartners first. Okay? That, that'll humble you, right? And so uh, wise, wise counsel, wise advice from godly man. Well, look at what else Jesus says. He says, How you serve, how you welcome, how you receive, treat even the least of people like children is equivalent to serving, welcoming, receiving Jesus himself. You see that? Whoever receives a child like this in my name receives me. He says in my name. Okay, You do this in my name. You do this representing me, representing who I am. Um, by his authority and his character. You are also receiving, welcoming, serving me. And he says, not only me, but also the one who sent me, God the Father. In in doing that to a child, receiving them, welcoming them, serving them with hospitality, kindness, treating them that way, you are also treating Jesus, even God the Father himself, that way. So some have said that this child represents believers, that Jesus is using this young one as a, a metaphor for believers. So how you treat, um, okay, so how Christians treat other believers is equivalent to how you treat Christ and God himself. Again, I don't take that view. Okay, I believe the child represents those who do not rank high on society's totem pole of priority and, and prestige. Okay, so our Lord is describing what it is to be a servant of all by receiving someone like that, who can't help you. He's going to do nothing for your name and your notoriety and your brand. Okay? Serving and tending this little one, he's saying whoever does this is the last and thus considered great in his eyes and in his kingdom. Okay? You are in fact receiving and welcoming even me and even the Father in being a servant of all. And that, my friends, is true greatness. That is true greatness. So to conclude here, Jesus is teaching this lesson that real greatness comes with humbling ourselves, battling pride in service to all others. Certainly, we haven't said all there is to say on this subject of pride, humility, greatness, the dangers of all that, the blessings and benefits of humility, cultivating that. 
Thankfully, we're going to have another opportunity in Mark chapter 10, okay, when we get there. But just a few final points of application here for us, okay, now that we hopefully understand the text. I want to give you three brief points of application as we close, and one kind of for each point. Okay, the first one, as we think about the greatest act of all time, okay, I want you to spend some quality time each day meditating on the gospel of Christ. And this is the greatest act of all time. Okay, what better things could we spend time dwelling upon and abiding in and thinking of? Okay, take some time off the computer, off the phone, off the TV screen, and spend some time thinking about the precious, beautiful gospel of Christ. Consider what he says, even as he's revealing what's to come for himself to dwell. Like you, you read that verse what Jesus is telling them, this greatest act in history. The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, and he will rise three days later. If you take that apart, folks, <laughs> you can explain the gospel to someone. You don't, you don't need a whole lot of training. Okay? Um, we do need training. We do need help with that. But if you spend time chewing on this and thinking about this, here's another thing. Memorize John 3.16 word for word and spend some time meditating on it. Every single aspect uh, of that one simple sentence, you will be able to share the gospel with someone and know what you're talking about if you prayerfully spend time doing that. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 3 and 4, another one. If I deliver to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That's, that's gospel right there. And if you explain it, it's the fullness of the gospel, the whole thing. And then you call people to repentance. You invite them to believe in Jesus. Okay? And so, meditate, memorize, think about the gospel, these basic, profound gospel truths. And, 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 and why? Why should you do that? First of all, for your own sanctification and your own soul refreshment, I guarantee you it will do you good, fellow brother, fellow sister in Christ. And if you are a believer, it will do your soul good. Okay, from the toils and busyness of the day, from the aches and pains of life, both physical and spiritual, okay, you, you need to preach the gospel to yourself every day. And besides that, it's a vital way for you to grow individually as a Christian and for us to grow together collectively as a church. As we do this and as we apply it and obey the Great Commission, that's the way to individual and collective growth. Friends, strangers, acquaintances, coworkers, family, you pray for them, you think about them. Be a servant of all. (laughs) Be a servant of all by sharing good news with them. The second point of application here, which has to do with the debate about greatness that the disciples are having. If you struggle with pride, and um, I'll put that in a first-class conditional Greek grammar sort of way. Okay, since you struggle with pride, okay, if you're tempted to make life about you rather than about Jesus and others, okay, first... Simply make sure you're repenting of that. 
You need to repent of, of pride. Proverbs 8.24 says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverted mouth, God is speaking here. He says, I hate it. I hate pride. Proverbs 6, verse 16 and 17. So there are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven of which are an abomination to him. Guess what the first thing is? Haughty eyes. In other words, pride. A prideful heart. An arrogant attitude. So make sure you're repenting when that comes up or someone comes up and kindly, lovingly tells you that. Repent of it. Be quick to repent of it. And um, the second thing with that is to, to meditate on Philippians 2, 3 to 11. Okay? Meditate on Philippians 2, 3 to 11. Because it starts off with a command, that very command of what we're talking about today. Paul says to the Philippians, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Do nothing out of pride, out of self-centeredness, about selfishness. Okay? Do nothing, nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. And have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. And so Jesus is the way, is he not? He, he did the greatest act in all of human history, which is marked by humble service to, to sinners. And so the rest of Philippians 2, that, that passage there, it, it describes, again, the beauty and the wonder and the amazingness of the condescension of our Lord and all that he did for us, right? So I'm going to encourage you. Proverbs 18.12 says, Before destruction, the heart of man is haughty, proud, but humility goes before honor, right? You want to be first? You must be last of all, a servant of all, right? Get down so you can get up, right? So there's nothing wrong with wanting to, to be exalted for the glory of God, and rest in the promises that the humble will be exalted. Hey, that's a, that's a, that's a promise for us. Um, of course, there's a prideful way to, to go about that and, and to look at that. But it's a promise. I want to take hold of that promise. And that's part of the joy that we have as Christians. So last point of application here is this. As we think about Jesus' definition and demonstration of, of true greatness. Okay, examine and evaluate your heart attitude and actual practice in real life examine and evaluate first your heart attitude right that's internal and then external your actual practice in real life hey do you consider yourself to be last of all are you a servant of all hey would other brothers and sisters in our faith bible church family consider you so and if so praise the lord soli deo gloria Glory to God alone, if that's true. I want to ask, do you look upon certain kinds of people as those qualified to be first before you, like worthy of your time and energy, okay, worthy for you to serve? And then other, other categories of people, not so much. Okay, that's a good, good heart question. For example, the handicapped. For example, the homeless, for example, the very poor, for example, the elderly. Some people might think of those people as, well, I'm before them. I'm not last before them. I'm not, they're not worthy of my servanthood, my service. Even like prisoners, psych ward, 
Hey, back in the seminary, we, we had this trips to the psych ward to preach the gospel to really disturb people. And so, so those kind of verses, rich people, or people who are, are well put together, hey, they're worthy of my, my time. They're worthy of my servanthood. Hey, I want to encourage you, dear Faith Bible Church family, as Christians, with the Lord above us, nothing and no one is beneath us. Amen? And if we want to be truly great, we need to be least of all and a servant of all. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your loving truth. God, how faithful you are to give us what we need, when we need it, and to speak to our hearts through your precious word. God, I, I thank you that that through things that may be difficult to hear or to receive, that your heart is, is for our soul's well-being and our soul's flourishing and our soul's good. And our greatest good is to become more like our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. And thank you that as we become more and more like him, um, we are putting you on display. You are the one who ultimately receives the honor and glory and praise. So we thank you for that, God. Help us to apply these things and to be doers of the word and not just hearers, because you are worthy of that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.